Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, irking both Presidents Xi and Biden. The lead starts right now. Walking on diplomatic eggshells, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arriving in Taiwan just hours ago. And almost immediately, the Chinese government firing up their fighter jets and launching a military response. Then, the U.S. kills one of the 9-11 masterminds and Osama bin Laden's former number two as he's standing on a balcony in downtown Kabul. Details emerging now about the strike that took six months to plan and involved a high-tech missile called a Hellfire. Plus... Brittany Griner returns to a Russian courtroom today as she faces what could be a major week for learning her fate in the Russian penal system. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our world lead, the trip that is creating tension around the globe. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi currently in Taiwan, ignoring weeks of warnings from President Biden and threats of retaliation from the Chinese government. Pelosi says her controversial trip honors, quote, America's unwavering commitment to the self-governing island's vibrant democracy, which China views as an inseparable part of its territory. President Biden previously had said the U.S. military did not think it was a good idea for Pelosi to visit, warning that it could and would increase tensions between Washington and Beijing. But President Biden stopped short of directly instructing her not to go. Upon Pelosi's arrival today, the tallest building in Taipei flashed a sign that read, Speaker Pelosi, welcome to Taiwan. Pelosi is the highest ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Chinese officials reacted with fury today, calling the move a major political provocation. China's foreign minister renewed President Xi Jinping's warning that the U.S. should not, quote, play with fire regarding Taiwan, and added that those who play with fire will surely perish by it. As CNN's Selena Wang reports for us now, U.S. officials are closely watching China's response as Beijing announces a series of targeted military actions around the island of Taiwan. Just before 11 p.m. local time, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi touched down in Taipei, ignoring relentless warnings from Beijing that there would be grave consequences. As second in line to the presidency, Pelosi became the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. She's spending the night, expected to meet the Taiwanese president and parliament on Wednesday. In an op-ed, she wrote, We cannot stand by as the CCP proceeds to threaten Taiwan and democracy itself. By traveling to Taiwan, we honor our commitment to democracy. Taiwan's presidential office said it experienced a cyber attack on its website just hours before Pelosi was expected to land, temporarily knocking it offline. State media reported Chinese fighter jets were crossing the Taiwan Strait as Pelosi was arriving. China's military said it's on high alert. And after Pelosi touched down in Taipei, announced a series of exercises and targeted military operations for what they say is to counteract the situation. 
There's no violation of any sovereignty issues here. Uh, her visit is very much in keeping with previous visits by congressional leaders. Beijing disagrees. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said Pelosi's visit is a serious violation of the One China principle. And these moves, like playing with fire, are extremely dangerous. Those who play with fire will perish by it. The idea that Taiwan is part of the motherland is core to the Communist Party's legitimacy. And Chinese President Xi Jinping can't afford to look weak right now. We're just months away from a key political meeting where he's expected to step into an unprecedented third term. But ultimately, it's the 24 million people of Taiwan caught between the world's superpowers who would bear the consequences of any escalation. And Jake, according to state media, late on Tuesday night, China's vice foreign minister urgently summoned the U.S. ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, to protest against Pelosi's visit in Taiwan. He told the ambassador that the U.S. should have stopped Pelosi from acting, quote, recklessly, accusing Pelosi of doing all of this to further her own political legacy. All of this adding even more friction and mistrust to a relationship that's already at its lowest point in decades, Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing, thanks so much. Let's bring in former Congresswoman and top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Jane Harman, along with former FBI and CIA official and CNN counterterrorism analyst, Phil mm-hmm. Mudd. Uh, Congresswoman Harman, let me start with you. China is threatening to retaliate against the U.S. for this visit. This is what China's ambassador to the U.S. told CNN earlier today. Take a listen. We will take whatever we can to respond and to protect, to safeguard our sovereignty, territory, integrity. And our response will be very firm, strong, and uh, forceful. What do you see the, the real impact being uh, of this visit and that threat? Well, China doesn't understand our system of government. Pelosi is the leader of the Congress, uh, which is a separate branch of government, and she's doing exactly what Newt Gingrich did 25 years ago. She has a right to make the trip, and that's why President Biden didn't tell her no, she couldn't make the trip. While I was in Congress, I went to North Korea, Syria, Libya, and I visited uh, Taiwan and this leader when she was opposition leader while I was head of the Wilson Center after I left Congress. So uh, what do we make of, of China's responses as 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 your previous segment said, the third party Congress uh, electing Xi to an unprecedented third term is in November and he wants to look strong. But Pelosi is not invading the sovereignty of China. And she uh, is also carefully saying she supports Taiwan's democracy, not Taiwan's independence. And nothing she said uh, said, implies that she's against what we still adhere to, which is the one China policy. Yeah. And Phil, let me ask you, because it seems so odd to me, you know, they, they think the Chinese government thinks that they're acting forcefully and, uh, you know, with muscle. It, it, it Honestly, if they just ignored it, uh, they would seem stronger than their hissy fit seems to be. Uh, sure, sure. But there's a couple issues here. This is an issue of face and vulnerability. If you're President Xi, one of the one of the strongest leaders in modern China, this is rubbing your nose in it by the speaker. That is, this is this is the speaker showing I'm the highest level official in 25 years. China is not only an emerging, but an emergent economic player, globally military player. And we're telling the Chinese, stuff it. We're going to do whatever the heck we want to do. So I think if you're president, she's stepping back. You've got to respond. You can't sit back and say no. 
because this is a declaration that the U.S. hasn't changed its policy on China, regardless of the emergence of a new China under Xi. And, and Congresswoman, what does Taiwan gain from this trip? Because obviously they welcomed her. Yes. Well, of course, they had to welcome her. I mean, that's what you do. But uh, I, th- obviously, she's bringing attention to the fact that they're a democracy. Uh, Taiwan's very important in the world right now because the, the major chip manufacturer is housed there. Uh, Pelosi, by the way, is doing this and stepping on another story, which is finally the passage of the CHIPS Act and the uh, almost passage of the uh, energy climate bill uh, that the Democrats are getting through the Senate. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I, I don't see that Taiwan loses here. And Taiwan is being careful. This leader of Taiwan is being careful. No one is advocating the independence of Taiwan. Uh, this is a longstanding policy we've had to support Taiwan in this way. And Pelosi is, is part of it. I just say one thing to my buddy, Bill, uh, Phil, uh, and that is, I, I don't think this is an intentional provocation of the world. I don't see it that way. Uh, she's within her rights. Uh, if you know Pelosi, she never backs down and she'll be 150 in in four inch heels and she'll never back down. Uh, so that's who she is. And I think this trip was long planned. It unfortunately hits at a weekend when so much other news is breaking. And kudos to the intelligence community uh, for the very carefully planned takedown of uh, uh, Sawahiri in, in downtown uh, Afghanistan, where he should not have been. Uh, the Taliban had to know he was there. Yeah, Phil. Is she coming after me? So I, I got to respond. Here. She's a friend. It's okay. But I I'm, love you, I'm, Phil. Uh, no. I, well, for the next 15 seconds, I don't love you. Then we'll go back to it. But th- I, I agree that she has the right to go. The question is whether it makes good sense. If you're the White House and you're looking at Ukraine, you're looking at President Biden coming out of the second round of COVID. You're looking at economic issues. As you say, the success of some legislation. We already have the U.S. military not only talking about the growth of Chinese power and, and exercises of power over the past five years. But the U.S. military is regular, regularly out there showing the Chinese that it's appropriate for the military to exercise. My question is, she can go, but why? What's the point? What is the upside? I don't get what the upside is, is, is except to give the president another headache. Congresswoman? Yeah, well, I wasn't saying the president authorized the trip. Uh, he said he didn't stop her. Uh, the the uh, Pentagon, as I understand it, counseled against her making the trip. Uh, but she's an ind- head of an independent branch of government, and she has a, her prerogative, and she's exercising it, even though lots of our allies, friends and partners, are going a little nuts about the timing of the trip. I agree with you, Phil, about that. See, the- she came around on me. There we go. It's all <laughs> For right. For those who don't know, also, I mean, uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, has long been uh, a hawk uh, when it comes to to China uh, and has long been speaking out uh, against its human rights abuses and the like. Uh, Congresswoman Jane Harmon, Phil Mudd, thanks to both of you. you. Really appreciate it. Coming up, uh, the story that the Congresswoman was just talking about, how the U.S. planned and carried out that mission to kill one of the 9-11 masterminds. Just using a drone and a high-tech missile, that's next. Then we could be just moments away for that much-needed relief for veterans who were exposed to burn pits. Will the Senate vote on the PACT Act actually get through this time. Stay with us. Sticking with our world lead and the aftermath of that successful U.S. drone strike that killed the leader of al-Qaeda, a man who was one of the masterminds of the September 11th attacks. CNN has identified this as the house in Kabul, Afghanistan, where a Hellfire missile drone strike took out Ayman al-Zawahiri. 
The 71-year-old rose to the very top of that terrorist organization after U.S. forces killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. The Biden administration says it does not have DNA confirmation of Zawahiri's death, but it has visual confirmation and reassurance through other sources that he was in fact killed and that no civilians were harmed in the attack. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, top U.S. national security officials are now saying that the Taliban harbored Zawahiri, which would be a clear violation of a 2020 deal with the U.S. Smoke billowing over Kabul following the pinpoint strike on Ayman al-Zawahiri's house. The windows of that house blown out, but the structure intact. Evidence of the care that was taken to avoid collateral damage. Aside from Zawahiri, U.S. officials say no one was hurt or killed. Today, the BBC visited the house, now draped in a green covering. The world's most wanted terrorist, the White House said, was killed on the third floor balcony. In this case, we use an unmanned aerial vehicle with, uh, with missiles, obviously, uh, and two of those missiles were fired at Mr. Uh, Zawahiri while he was outside on that third floor uh, uh, balcony. The president made it very clear when he made the decision um, but he wanted to make sure we avoided civilian casualties, and we know we did. Visual and other kinds of intelligence confirmed that, the White House's John Kirby said, but there is no DNA evidence of Zawahiri's death. The intelligence gathering and planning took place for most of the year. This Situation Room meeting with top national security officials was in early July, when President Biden was shown a model of Zawahiri's building. Confidence had grown that the al-Qaeda leader, who had a $25 million bounty on his head, had moved into downtown Kabul with his family. He never left the house, officials say, but his family's movements were tracked, and he was spotted on the balcony where he was eventually killed early Sunday morning Kabul time with two Hellfire missiles launched by a drone overhead. Zawahiri's last recorded message was just three weeks ago. He had become more of a spiritual figurehead than an operational leader of al-Qaeda. But his presence in the Afghan capital is evidence, the U.S. says, of the Taliban reneging on the deal known as the Doha Agreement, that they would not harbor terrorists in Afghanistan. There were senior members of the Haqqani network uh, who are affiliated with the Taliban who did know that Zawahiri was in Kabul. There may have been other members of the Taliban who did not know. Uh, We have already been engaged with the Taliban, and uh, I'm not going to preview any further actions that we will take to ensure that the Taliban lives up to its commitments. The Taliban has condemned the strike, but the Biden administration immediately held it up as proof that terrorists can effectively be targeted inside Afghanistan with no U.S. boots on the ground. If you are a threat to our people, The United States will find you and take you out. Now, there's no doubt this was a sophisticated, well-executed strike, but it does remain to be seen whether this over-the-horizon capability, as it's known, can be scaled up and replicated for other terrorists who aren't as prominent as Zawahri and who are often in far more remote areas. Jake, as for who may take over from Zawahri, experts believe the next person in line is a man named Saif al-Adil. He's a fellow Egyptian who is believed to have been living in Iran. He's been on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list, and there is a reward out for him for $10 million for information on him. Yeah, Zahari was uh, on the FBI most wanted list a long time since 1998 for the U.S. embassy bombings in Africa. Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss White, Han- White House Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall. Um, Liz, uh, congratulations to those who carried out this successful attack, and congratulations 
to the White House. Uh, always good to have a leader of al-Qaeda gone. Um, can you give us any more insight into how this operation developed? How did the U.S. locate Zawari, and, and how did the U.S. decide that a drone strike was the best plan of action? Thanks, Jake. It's great to be with you. Look, the president set very high bars for us. First of all, we had to gather the intelligence that enabled us to know where Zawahiri was and that it was actually Zawahiri who was located in the house in Kabul. We had to be able to confirm that with high confidence. Second, the president wanted to understand the details of the proposed operation, which had to be developed through multiple iterations and with red teaming it to ensure that all efforts had been made at the president's direction to minimize civilian casualties and to ensure that in the weapons that were chosen for use in the strike that we could prevent the building from collapsing but rather do a precise and targeted strike against the individual who was Ayman al-Zawahiri sitting on his third floor balcony. So that's fast. Third, we had to oh, do this. Sorry. We had to do this from over the horizon, as your reporting has indicated, with no boots on the ground. So that creates an additional challenge, which we were capable of meeting, and that fulfills the president's commitment to the American people when he made the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. That we would be capable of engaging when we needed to to signal that it was not acceptable to allow terrorists to have safe harbor in Afghanistan. And with Zawahiri dead now. It's evident that al-Qaeda has no safe home, no safe house, no safe harbor in Afghanistan. So can you, you mentioned that in point two there about not exploding the house uh, so as to not have civilian casualties. Can you confirm exactly what kind of weapon was used here? Because I've seen reports that it was a CIA drone with so-called sword bombs. Is that accurate? Jake, we're not going to go into those details. You have heard reporting that the strike was taken from a drone with two Hellfire missiles. They were fired with great precision and accuracy, and that led to the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri. And it prevented the collapse of the building due to its precision. If you do not have DNA evidence, how can you be confident that Zahawari, Zawahiri is the man who was killed in the drone strike? Well, we know who was on the balcony. And we have multiple sources and methods that we have used to confirm with high confidence that it was Zawahiri who was killed. We also have seen the cover-up that was undertaken subsequently by the Haqqani Taliban in an endeavor to quickly remove his family from the compound and also to clean up after the strike. Last August, President Biden said this while he was defending the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Take a listen. Look, let's put this thing in perspective here. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone? We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, as well as, as well as getting Osama bin Laden. And we did. One could argue this strike is proof that al-Qaeda is not only still in Afghanistan, uh, but that it was emboldened by the withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, in the sense that here we have the head of al-Qaeda in downtown Kabul. I think the opposite is true, actually. We have signaled vividly to those who are leading Afghanistan today that we won't tolerate this. We have exquisite intelligence. We were able to find Zawahiri where he had relocated. We were able to target him and kill him. 
And for the Taliban, it's evidence that we will uphold the Doha Agreement. They need to uphold the Doha Agreement or there will be consequences because the president is committed to ensuring that there will not be operational planning against the United States that emanates from Afghanistan again. What possible consequences? There are numerous things that the Taliban wants right now. They need international recognition. Indeed, they want to invite countries to come back and locate embassies in Kabul in the very area of Kabul where this strike took place. They're looking for the financing that will allow their economy to get back on its feet. They're looking for other kinds of sanctions relief. And with evidence that is broadcast to the world through the strike we had to take, it's clear that the Taliban is not living up to its commitments, and so that will put at risk some of the things that they most desperately need. We have business to do with them, too. We need to secure the release of Mark Frerix. We want to ensure that we can continue to evacuate those who are our partners in Afghanistan, so there will be an ongoing dialogue uh, with the Taliban about the matters on the table between the two of us. And we know that they need the kind of uh, recognition and support that will be denied to them if they continue to provide safe haven to terrorists like Ayman al-Zawahiri. Well, congratulations to the Biden White House. Congratulations especially to those who carried out this mission. Uh, Liz Sherwood-Randall, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Jake. Olympic gold medalist Brittany Griner back in a Russian courtroom as questions grow about a possible prisoner swap. That's ahead. We're back with more in our world lead today. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said American, quote, megaphone diplomacy will not help WNBA star Brittany Griner after Russia did not immediately accept a very public U.S. proposal for a prisoner swap. Meanwhile, Griner, who has been detained in Russia since February, awaits her fate in court. The Olympian has pleaded guilty, but insists she only accidentally entered Russia with less than a gram of cannabis oil. She is facing up to 10 years in prison. CNN's Fred Plykin is following this all from Moscow. Fred, Griner was in court today for her seventh time. How close is this verdict? Well, it seems like it's very close. This was the final day that witnesses were called by the defense, and they had an expert witness on who sort of called into question some of the original forensics that were done on those two vaping cartridges, which Brittany Griner has, of course, admitted uh, to having brought with her when she entered that Moscow airport on February 17th. Again, she said she did not do that on purpose. She didn't know uh, that she had them. Uh, And basically, the question is how much cannabis was actually inside them, and that was sort of called into question today. In total, uh, I was able to speak to Brittany Griner's defense team today, and they told me they think uh, that they've been quite successful so far, given the circumstances. They said that Brittany Griner, of course, pleaded guilty, took responsibility. At the same time, they're trying to cast some doubt on some of the forensics that were done. But she also had some character witnesses as well that sort of uh, testified about the fact that she's obviously someone who's done a lot for the sport of basketball, not just internationally, but specifically in Russia as well. They're looking for a lenient verdict. Of course, you know, we've talked about this and Russian court really aren't known for leniency. There could be a verdict, though, and I got this today from the defense team as early as Thursday of this week. Not clear whether that's actually going to happen, but they said it is a possibility, Jake. Fred, what do we know about the possible prisoner exchange? Mm. Is that just off the table? Well, we know the Russians don't want to talk about it publicly. I mean, one of the things uh, that, that, that you just mentioned is that Dmitry Peskov came out once again today and called all, all of it megaphone diplomacy. But it certainly is something that does loom very large 
uh, over Brittany Griner's trial. It's not necessarily something that happens in the uh, procedural hearings or plays a role there, but it's certainly something that sort of is around it and is really very much publicly discussed also uh, here uh, in Russia, uh, you know, on news TV uh, as well. So it is certainly something that's out there. It's unclear whether or not these negotiations are still going on, whether or not they've gone cold, but certainly the Russians are still commenting on it, as we heard from Dmitry Peskov today. One of the things that Brittany Griner's legal team told me today is they think that they believe that there needs to be a verdict in the trial in order for a prisoner exchange to happen. Again, that could happen as early as Thursday, but then, of course, we don't know where these negotiations currently are. The defense team tells me they do hope that there could be a prisoner exchange. They simply want Brittany to come home as fast as possible, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Tom Firestone, a former legal advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Tom, thanks so much for, for being here. You heard uh, Fred say that the verdict could come as soon as Thursday. What, what do you expect in terms of sentencing? Well, I think we'll get a conviction, first of all, because the conviction rate in Russia is very high, about 99%. In terms of sentencing, it's very hard to predict. Judges in Russia have tremendous discretion. It's not like in the U.S. where you have sentencing guidelines. So it could be low or it could be high. The most recent precedents we have of Americans, we had Mark Fogel, who was convicted in June for less than 20 grams of medical cannabis, got 14 years. Nami Sakar in 2019 had less than 10 grams of marijuana, got seven and a half years. So that suggests there'll be a substantial sentence. If Greiner is convicted and if she's sentenced before there is any sort of prisoner swap, um, we've heard a little bit from Trevor Reed, uh, the former Marine who was in a, in a Russian prison, about how horrible the system can be. Um, is that what it's going to be like for her too? Well, it's not a good place to be, obviously. You just read the you know, State Department human rights reports on Russian conditions paint a very ugly picture. So if she is convicted, she'll stay in the CISO, the pretrial detention facility near Moscow, until her appeal is heard and presumably upheld, and then she'll be sent to a penal colony outside of Moscow. So it's not a pretty place to be. Are women's prisons prisons as bad as men's prisons in Russia? I was only in, when I worked at the embassy, I was only in men's prisons, but the women's prisons are not good either. Again, we have Nami Sakar talked about what it was like when she was there, and she painted a very unpleasant picture. What do you think was behind the U.S. strategy to make such a public proposal for a prisoner swap, which uh, Dmitry Paskov, the Kremlin spokesman today, called megaphone diplomacy? Well, presumably they were getting a lot of pressure here in the United States to do something to get Greiner and Paul Whelan out. And I think they wanted to show that, look, the problem's not on our side. We made the offer. It's the Russians who are not accepting it. So I think they were trying to demonstrate every, th- how much they were doing to try to get Greiner and Whelan out. I guess I don't understand. There's so much about Putin and the Russians I don't understand. But Victor Boot, this who's like a Bond supervillain, I mean, arms dealer, drug dealer, uh, horrible person in a U.S. prison right now. It seems like he is more valuable to the Russian government um, than these two civilians who I definitely, you know, I, I want them home and all that. But they're they're not like key masterminds and spies and drug runners and arms runners for us. Why wouldn't the Russians want that swap? It seems like you know, boot is perfect for them to continue to carry out their evil plans. (laughs) Well, I think that they probably, I can't get inside their minds, but presumably they're looking at the way things are going in the United States. They see there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to get Griner and Whelan out. And so maybe they're thinking, yeah, we can play this out a little bit longer. Uh, Boot's been in jail for a long time. He can sit a little bit longer. Maybe we'll try to squeeze some extra concessions out of the U.S. government. So Victor Boot's attorney uh, told CNN that progress is being made on a prisoner swap, and he's confident it will happen. He says that's 
That's information coming from the Russian side. What do you think? Well, he's, we don't know. We just, it's very hard to evaluate. He's not privy to everything that's going on. It looks like there's a lot of discussion. Things are moving in that direction, but we've still got a ways to go. If they did, in fact, insist on throwing Mr. Krasikov into some deal, the United States has said that that's not a serious offer. It looks like we've got a ways to go until there's a full deal. Yeah, Vadim Krasikov, a convicted murderer uh, who's in German custody. They Correct. Want him, yeah. They want him back, too. I mean... Okay. Thanks <laughs> yes. so much, Tom. Thank I you. I appreciate it. I mean, just, you know, the, the, the people that they want back are convicted murderer and an arms dealer, and we have, you know, a WNBA star. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you very much. They may be the two most powerful Democrats in Washington right now. I wonder what Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema were talking about this afternoon. That's next. Topping our politics lead now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate is on track to vote this week on Democrats' climate and health care bill. His partner on that legislation, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, suggested today that the deal could garner all 50 Democratic votes because he said it's, quote, everything Kirsten agreed to in December, unquote. He is, of course, referring to a key holdout, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Sinema has yet to tell anyone where she stands on this bill. We should note, however, she has previously raised concerns about taxing on on a higher rate carried interest, what hedge fund managers pay, for example, which is part of the deal. The carry interest loophole allows investment managers to pay lower taxes, 15% on their compensation. CNN congressional correspondent Jessica Dean joins us now live. And Jessica, how much longer is this deal, this Schumer uh, mansion deal, in in a holding pattern? Well, we're looking at two people right now, Jake. We're looking at the parliamentarian who, because they're using this special Democrats-only budget process, is having to rule on all of these items they want to put into the bill. So we're waiting for her to say if it all fits in. That's number one. Number two, as you just alluded to, Senator Kirsten Sinema, who is still uh, yet to publicly speak on this, she said she's waiting for the parliamentarian uh, to rule on this, uh, to make her decision. But we did see her and Senator Joe Manchin talking for about nine minutes on the Senate floor as she presided over the Senate floor earlier today. And he took questions from the press shortly thereafter. And of course, he was asked about that. He said it was a good conversation. Take a listen. We had a nice talk. She'll make a decision based on the facts. We're exchanging. uh, We'll be exchanging texts back and forth. And that she's always been that. She's extremely bright. She works hard. She makes a good decision based on facts, and I'm relying on that. And our staffs will be working together very closely with all of the senators. And Jake, he was asked specifically about uh, closing that tax loophole on carried interest, which you just explained. And he said that's something they're still talking about. Uh, So that's still, again, uh, some of the papers they're trading back and forth, it appears. And I asked Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer if he talked to Sinema uh, and if she had requested any changes to the agreement or if uh, they had talked about any changes. And he simply said that they have been in touch and that he is hopeful they're all going to stay united, Jake. And Jessica, today uh, the Senate passed a bill which would expand death and disability benefits for public safety officers who suffer from post-traumatic stress and those who die by suicide. And we have some news. Uh, Senator Schumer said just minutes ago that Democrats and Republicans have reached a deal for a vote tonight on this bill, the PACT Act, to provide health insurance for veterans who have illnesses because they were exposed to 
toxic burn pits. Tell us more about that. Right. So this is a significant development in legislation, Jake, that frankly we thought was going to pass last week with no problem. That's when Republicans held it up uh, with Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania, kind of being the ringleader there, holding it up over a budget issue that he was not happy with. He wanted an amendment vote. So they've been back and forth over this, uh, stalling out this legislation for veterans. And now it appears that we are going to have this vote series tonight, starting at 5 p.m. And the compromise they've come to is three amendment votes with a 60 vote threshold. So uh, Senator Toomey agreeing to that his amendment will be one of those amendment votes and then they will vote on final passage. And what's key here, Jake, is once it passes here in the Senate and we do expect that that ultimate final passage vote will be a large bipartisan vote. Uh, it will go to President Biden's desk for signature, Jake. All right, Jessica Dean reporting on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Almost three months ago, the first case of monkeypox was diagnosed in the U.S. So why is the White House just now naming someone to coordinate the response? Stay with us. In our health lead and hopefully in the better late than never category, today the Biden administration finally named leaders for the national effort to contain the monkeypox outbreak in the U.S. Robert Fenton, a regional FEMA administrator who oversees four western states, including California, will serve as the National Monkeypox Response Coordinator, his deputy is Dr. Dimitri Daskaklakas, the director of the CDC's Division of HIV AIDS Prevention. As you have undoubtedly heard by now, monkeypox causes unsightly skin lesions, severe pain, and in, in rare cases, even some, some people die. The first U.S. case was confirmed on May 17th in Massachusetts. It has since spread across the country with at least 5,800 probable or confirmed cases in the U.S. Globally, the count is more than 23,000 in 80 countries. Let's bring in epidemiologist Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. First of all, uh, Michael, your reaction to today's announcement, it seems to cover both the bureaucratic and medical ends of the spectrum, but uh, I know a lot of people thought this took too long. Well, I think it is a, a good positive step forward, but I think we have to add the important dose of reality is that the only thing that's going to ever bring this uh, outbreak under control and contain it is going to be vaccine. And we have a major shortage globally of vaccine. Uh, and so that until we get that, I don't care how many people you appoint or what you appoint, uh, we're still going to have m tremendous challenges with monkeypox. One of the challenges, um, as you and I have discussed, you think that the public health messaging uh, about those who are most at risk for monkeypox, which are men who have multiple male sexual partners, you think that that messaging needs to be much clearer and much more specific? Well, I do, and I think that we've shied away from being clear. Our job in public health is to call balls and strikes. We're supposed to just put the facts out there and then act accordingly to try to reduce the risk of the disease in our communities. For example, uh, right now we have many that refuse to consider this a sexually transmitted infection. Somehow that's a stigmatization. Well, in fact, it is a sexually transmitted disease infection, just like syphilis or any of the herpes, any of the diseases like that that also have ulcers. Second of all is the fact that uh, in terms of looking at who's at risk, we are stigmatizing, in a sense, all gay men. If you look at the surveys that have been done looking at sexual activity among gay men, most notably the one from the University of Chicago, found that 52% of gay men have 10 or fewer partners. And they are not wildly sexually active, as some people have suggested, uh, and, and right, wrongfully so. On the other hand, 10% 
of gay men have had 101 or more partners in their lifetime, and 1.9% have had over 400. And when we look at that group, that is the group that we're really seeing the activity with this virus. And so uh, it's a really important issue for us to get vaccine to that group, not just gay men, but if we're gonna have the most targeted impact, we gotta know who the audience is that we need to be promoting vaccination for. Right, there's a fear of stigmatizing. I, I just wanna clarify something though. You say it is a sexually transmitted diseases, but it's not only a sexually transmitted disease, right? People can get it from close contact uh, without having sex, even with somebody like a, a, there, I think some children have gotten it, not necessarily from sexual contact or not from sexual contact, I should say. No, that's a very important point, Jake. But every sexually transmitted disease we have has that same characteristics. Look at HIV AIDS. In the early days of HIV AIDS, some of the most painful moments I had were looking at all of the young kids with hemophilia who had developed HIV because of blood exposure. Today, one of the challenges we have with syphilis is actually the transmission from an infected mother to her unborn child. I could go through the laundry list, even Zika, the disease that was for so long considered a mosquito-borne disease today we know is sexually transmitted. So it doesn't mean that it's exclusively sexually transmitted, right. and, uh, but that's an important point because still 98% of the cases we're seeing are in gay men. In a study just released out of uh, England, 44% of them had reported participating in group sex in the time period they were likely infected. That's the area that we need to concentrate on to try to reduce transmission. And how do you do that? Well, I think, first of all, get as much vaccine to them as possible. But in fact, as of today, Jake, we're now over 90 countries in the world that are, have cases. And so the whole world wants this vaccine for which there's only one supplier in the whole world. And fortunately, the United States government invested what they did because they're the ones that got this vaccine as far as it is. Uh, but the problem is we're going to have a big shortage of vaccine over the days and months ahead. I think it's very critical that every community in this country, public health, the gay community, the medical community come together and say, OK, if we only have 8000 doses and we have 20,000 people that likely need it, how are we going to give that out so that we have the most impact? And that's, again, where it's important to know who's at highest risk. So I think the other area that we're going to see in the near term, I'm convinced of, they're going to see more and more spillover into black women. Why? Because when we look at HIV, the same thing happened where a number of black men who have sex with men do not acknowledge as such that they are having uh, that as a, a non-heterosexual experience. And then we see it spill over into their female sex partners. It's going to be critical that we get ahead of that. So right now, we need to bring communities together to say, how are we going to use this precious vaccine? And then provide the risk reduction information. You know, you can do a lot to control this in your own life. And we're talking short term. We're not talking about for the rest of your life but until the months ahead that we have the vaccines. Michael Osterholm, thank you so much. Appreciate it. What's up thank with you. text messages from January 6th being deleted? Another agency's phone records have been wiped. The news that you will hear first here on CNN. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, have you been accused of cheating by tampering with other teams, players, and even trying to bribe a coach to lose games? Don't worry, you can still own an NFL team. The owner of the Miami Dolphins just learned the results of the league's investigation and his punishment. Plus, the Secret Service, the Department of Homeland Security, and now the Pentagon. Do any key officials at government agencies still have their text message records from January 6th? And leading this hour, 
Despite warnings from U.S. officials about adding to the instability between the U.S. and China, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan. In the days and hours leading up to her visit, China repeatedly made threats of military repercussions. And just moments after Pelosi touched down in Taipei, China made an announcement seeming to back up those threats. As CNN's Will Ripley reports for us from Taiwan's capital city of Taipei right now, China is launching a series of targeted military operations surrounding the self-governing island. A resounding show of American support for Taiwan in the face of escalating threats from China. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landing in Taiwan Tuesday, a display of defiance, ignoring days of perilous warnings from China. Minutes after Pelosi's arrival, China announced a series of targeted military operations in response to the House Speaker's visit. State media publishing a map of the drills, which began during the overnight hours, some just miles from the Taiwanese coast. As Pelosi's convoy arrived at her Taipei hotel, a heavy police presence, two groups of protesters gathered outside. Some welcomed Pelosi's support for Taiwan. Speaker of House is uh, Nancy Pelosi has been supporting Taiwan for decades. And it's very important for me as a Taiwanese to be here tonight to welcome her. Others accuse her of escalating tensions. Right now, Pelosi and the United States are treating Taiwan as a chess piece. Once she lands in Taiwan, mainland China will retaliate using their own methods. China's foreign ministry spokesman calling Pelosi's stop in Taiwan a serious violation of the One China principle that will have a severe impact on the political foundation of China-U.S. relations. Taiwan says cyber attacks knocked some government websites offline. No immediate claims of responsibility. Beijing calls Taiwan a breakaway province of China. The mainland communist rulers have never controlled the island of almost 24 million people. They refuse to recognize Taiwan's democratically elected government. Taiwan says China sent more than 20 warplanes into the island's air defense zone Tuesday, part of what Taiwan calls an ongoing campaign of bullying by Beijing, using its massive military and economic power to isolate the island. In a Washington Post op-ed published shortly after her arrival in Taipei, Pelosi writes, In the face of the Chinese Communist Party's accelerating aggression, our congressional delegation's visit should be seen as an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom. That sentiment echoed by other U.S. officials Tuesday. For China to try to turn what is in the historical norm into a crisis or to try to use it uh, as a pretext for aggressive action around Taiwan, uh, that's on them. And they would be the ones who'd be escalating. So why is China escalating? Well, this is all happening at a very sensitive time for China's most powerful leader since Mao, Xi Jinping. He's just months away from a crucial political gathering that is almost pretty much certain to uh, rule for uh, he's going to allow to be uh, president for an unprecedented third term. And Jake, this eventually sets the scene for him to be president for uh, life, potentially, theoretically. And it's so important to President Xi that there be calm and stability. So to have him saying that he's, you know, he's going to eventually reunify Taiwan with the mainland by force if necessary and have Nancy Pelosi showing such support for the government there. That's why we're, we're seeing what we're seeing now. These military exercises, some of them literally miles, possibly within earshot of the Taiwanese coast. Jake. Will Ripley in Taiwan. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Max Baucus. He was the U.S. ambassador 
to China during the Obama administration. Before that, a Democratic senator from Montana. Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. So the Chinese foreign ministry released a statement on the speaker's visit earlier today, which reads in part, these moves like playing with fire are extremely dangerous. Those who play with fire will perish by it. Now, Ambassador, you know China very well. You're you're critical of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Why? Well, it's unnecessary. In fact, I think it's irresponsible. Um, The goal of U.S. foreign policy toward China should be to reduce tension, not increase tension. And we know how perilously fraught with tension the relationship already is. Uh, Second, there's no reason for it to go. Our military is, is, is present in the region. Many American officials go over showing their support of Taiwan. There's no reason for it to go. So it's really a provocation. And frankly, when you read the reasons in her op-ed why she's going, it's, they're pretty, um, it's almost disingenuous. She doesn't really recognize our current policy, our one China policy very well. And she uses lots of hot rhetoric in there critical of China. So there's no reason to go. It's irresponsible. And I think there are going to be consequences. I hope they're not great, but I worry they might be. What consequences do you think there will be? Don't know. Um, they range from some minor military action, perhaps uh, taking a small island off the coast, uh, to, uh, more military drills, or it may, may be something more fundamental. Um, they may decide, contrary to U.S. Uh, treaties to ch- uh, China, uh, where we've asked China not to help Russia and Ukraine, they may decide, oh, what the heck, you can't depend upon uh, U.S. anymore, so we might start helping Russia. It's, it's, I don't know, but there, it'll be calculated. It'll probably be something that's pretty strong, but not one that's too strong because the Chinese like um, stability. Uh, they, they don't want to rock the boat too much. They're worried about their economy, just as we are about ours. And President Xi knows that um, the more the... He, he takes some action which disrupts uh, the growth of the, of the Chinese economy, the more that puts him in jeopardy. He's already strong. He's going to get reelected. That's not a question. In addition to that, the people of China that I talked to are very opposed to Pelosi's visit. So he has the backing of the Chinese people as well. He'll take some action. Right. Speaker Pelosi, you know, her argument, as she lays out in her Washington Post op-ed, is that she is showing uh, support for democracy in Taiwan. And there are a lot of people on Capitol Hill who support she's, what she's doing, including Republican senators. Senator Roy Blunt uh, said uh, this earlier today. Take a listen. I'm about to use four words in a row that I haven't used in this way before, and those four words are Speaker Pelosi was right when she decided to include Taiwan on her visit to Asia, or if she'd just been going to Taiwan, that would have been Right. Isn't there something to be said about taking a stand for democracy for the people of Taiwan? Oh, yeah. Clearly there is. But the United States has already done that. Um, We don't have to do it more. Taiwanese know where we stand. Um, But this is a provocation um, because the Chinese government is very opposed to the visit. Don't forget, she's speaker. She's not just an ordinary member of Congress. Add to that, um, she's a very strong hawk. She's very critical of China. And really what this is doing, it's, it's pushing the uh, uh, support of democracy a little closer to, to uh, crossing the line into independence. That's the real problem here. And the more that uh, uh, Taiwan will not formally declare independence, uh, that would be a disaster. 
but they're going to get close to it. And if they get too close to it, uh, China has no recourse but to take action. This is uh, existential to China. It was driven home to me when I was serving there. Tibet, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong. It's it's just not it's non-negotiable, and we're we are playing with fire, but we get pretty close to the line. And Pelosi is pushing us much much closer to recognizing uh, Taiwan as an independent as an independent country. And once once we get close, once we get there, um, we're we're going to pay a price. Taiwanese government websites experienced cyber attacks of Russian and Chinese origin today. Do you expect that we're going to see more of this uh, cyber attacks? And might they attack the United States? I obviously we don't know. Uh, the Chinese government is opaque. They you don't know what they do until they do it. <laughs> there aren't leaks in China as there are in the U.S. We're a democracy. They're authoritarian. You just don't see leaks, so it's hard to know. But it's it, it could be cyber. It could be cyber Taiwan. It could be cyber against the U.S. Um, I don't know. They're they're trying to calculate something that's strong, very strong, because they got to save face here, but not too strong so as to uh, cause some kind of either military engagement or military action, which is which, which could escalate to something much worse. The deeper problem here really is that the, the visit to, by the speaker is really pushing America more toward recognizing China as an independent country. That's that's a big problem here. Don't forget, too, it's, you know, Speaker Pelosi, it's a free pass for her. She's not the president. She doesn't have to worry about uh, conducting foreign policy worldwide. She is a member of Congress. She doesn't have to worry about it. She does a little, but not much. So poor Joe Biden, he looks weak because he either told her not to go, and it looks weak in the Chinese guys, or he's weak because he told her not to go and she went anyway. And that, that makes us look a little bit weak to the Chinese. And I got to tell you, during the time I was serving in Beijing, one thing I really learned, Chinese understand strength better than do people in any other country. And they could smell, smell weakness 100 miles away We've got to be strong, but strong in the best sense. That really means where they respect us, uh, not where we take silly actions like the one uh, where the speaker just took. Yeah. Uh, and former Ambassador Max Baucus, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, new pictures of the compound that housed the most wanted terrorist in the world before he was taken out by a high-tech U.S. missile. Then, what happens when Donald Trump endorses Eric in a Senate race, but there are three Erics running in that Senate race? Well, Missouri voters are about to find out. Stay with us. One of the masterminds behind 9-11 has been killed. U.S. forces killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri over the weekend by precisely targeting his safe house in downtown Kabul with a Hellfire missile drone. President Biden ordered the strike after months of secret planning with a close circle of advisors. One senior official tells CNN Biden was deeply engaged and immersed in planning, studying a scale model of the house, you can see it there in the photo, and asking detailed questions about how to minimize any risk to civilians. And now CNN's Nick Payton Walsh investigates what's next for the notorious terrorist organization. The target was the same as it was at the start of the war on terror. 9-11 mastermind turned al-Qaeda's 71-year-old leader. But the method, startlingly precise. Two missiles hitting Kabul's fanciest streets. The al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, stepping onto a balcony that had likely for years housed rich Westerners working for NATO, but stepping out onto it dawn Sunday for the last time. I authorized a precision strike that would remove him from the battlefield. 
once and for all. The Biden administration so confident they got the right guy, they built a model of the house. They said they didn't need boots on the ground before the strike or after. We do not have DNA confirmation. We're not going to get that confirmation. And quite frankly, based on the multiple sources uh, 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 and methods that we have gathered the information from, we don't need it. It was a staggering counterterrorism success, born of a failure the US had tried to gloss over. As the US rushed to leave Afghanistan, at the end losing control at the close of its longest war, it had tried to suggest al-Qaeda were degraded, no longer a threat there. But in truth, the group were finding a safe haven there again, with concerns last year they might have been able to strike the West again as early as next year. They weren't the threat they were when Zawahiri masterminded savagery at the US Embassy in Nairobi or on the USS Cole. And their brutal star had been eclipsed by the mayhem of ISIS. But their franchises had spread across the world, often encouraging locals to target other locals. And Zawahiri remained their figurehead with his hands on some buttons. Analysts felt his recent messages suggested a man more at ease, even complacent. U.S. officials saying they had followed family members to get him. His most likely successor, Saif al-Adl, recently in Iran, according to the UN. One former Afghan official telling me he may have recently left for Afghanistan. But terror leaders last less long these days. Still, the enduring harder questions afford the Taliban. Few believed they had truly renounced terror like they promised the US. But after 20 years of war, they still brought exactly the same al-Qaeda figures back into the safest of their havens, central Kabul. Yet found the United States also had a long memory and now didn't even need to be there to kill their most wanted. Now, what's important here, Jake, fundamentally, is the next question. Not so much whether or not that al-Qaeda managed to reconstitute themselves after the loss of yet another leader, but whether this strike impacts, again, the worsening daily life of ordinary Afghans. Sanctions, the isolation of their country, taking a daily toll on ordinary people, and something like this, so boldly exposing the safe haven that al-Qaeda clearly have there under some parts of the Taliban, could make the country's relations with the outside world harder still, just making daily life yet more agonizing, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin joins us now. She's a former Middle East analyst for the CIA. Congresswoman, you, you joined the CIA because you were in New York on 9-11. So what went through your mind when you heard that the U.S. had killed a Zawahiri? Yeah, I, honestly, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Um, you know, I know that there's lots of different strikes that happened over the years, but this guy was just so integral to everything that's gone on with al-Qaeda since they attacked us. Um, and before that, it, it just it's a big, big win and a big moment. Um, we've now taken out really the top leadership that attacked us on that day. And I, I just thought about all that has come from those attacks, the wars, uh, the spread of Al Qaeda and their ideology all over the Middle East and, and Africa. And he had a lot to do with it. So I was glad he was taken out and I was really stopped in my tracks when I heard the news. The house where he was killed is only about a thousand feet away from the UK embassy in Kabul. Does the fact that Zawahiri felt comfortable enough to hide out in this area of downtown Kabul, doesn't that suggest that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan left a, a chasm, a void that Al Qaeda is clearly taking advantage of? 
Well, it certainly means that he felt completely comfortable coming back to a crowded city, uh, you know, kind of more posh neighborhood. He was out with his family. I mean, he certainly did not feel a whole lot of fear. I mean, that's a real problem, right? They, we want these groups to be under stress so they can't organize, they can't mobilize, or they have a harder time doing it. But I think one of the, the answers to that was what happened uh, with the strike, right? I mean, a real precision strike um, right in the heart of Kabul. Clearly wasn't, he wasn't expecting it. The Kabul, the Taliban government were not expecting it. And so I think it's an important answer to that brazenness with which he and probably the Taliban are, are thinking about al-Qaeda and harboring them. As a former CIA officer, what do you know about the type of weapons that might have been used in this strike? Uh, we've seen reports that it was a CIA drone uh, with so-called sword bombs. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know that a ton of details other than, uh, you know, they, they weren't packed with the traditional ordinance so that the, the it would literally be a precision strike on the very human being they were trying to get. Not his kids, not his family, um, you know, not the, uh, we gave him the respect um, and the community, the respect that he never gave any of us when he hit us on 9-11. Um, but, uh, you know, this is this is modern day warfare. It's much more precise. What I think is really interesting, and I will admit that I was skeptical about whether we could pull off so-called over the horizon strikes in Afghanistan after we left. Right. How do you have a strong intelligence presence? How do you understand targeting and make sure you're accurate? We had a lot of open questions on the Armed Services Committee, both sides of the aisle, about whether we could pull that off. And I think this this past couple of days is a real answer to that. Not only can we pull off a strike when we need to against a senior leader, um, but we can do it with extreme precision. So um, I will admit that I, w- I was surprised to hear about the attack um, and heartened to see it. And I, and I give the president credit for making a tough call. The White House seems pretty confident that senior Taliban figures knew Zawahiri was hiding out in Kabul, which obviously is a direct violation of the Doha agreement. Not that anyone expects the Taliban to uphold agreements. But what do you think the Biden administration should do to hold the Taliban accountable uh, and show that there are consequences to this type of thing? Well, we know that the the Taliban has been quietly talking to the U.N. and others um, about how they can get control of their economy again, how they, they can get some reserves, how they can get control of their food aid. You know, how can they be treated as a normal, normal government? We know that a lot of those senior Taliban leaders really enjoyed living abroad, going shopping at the, you know, shopping malls of the Gulf. They, they want to be treated like a normal government. And I think what happened this past couple of days proves they should not be treated like a normal government and in any time soon. Um, their, their feigned outrage over the strike, give me a break. Um, they, they had what was coming to them. And in my mind, they are just not credible as a real government in that capital. Aren't you concerned that while Zawahiri, obviously, it's great that he was targeted successfully and with limited, if no, civilian casualties, but he was 71. He was infamous. He'd been on the FBI Most Wanted list since 1998 for the embassy bombings, the U.S. embassy bombings in Africa. And because we're out of Afghanistan, the U.S. is out of Afghanistan, we don't have the intel, the people on the ground, the knowledge to go get the person who might be 35, unknown, and yet rising through the ranks? I don't know. I mean, I think that that uh, 
pulling the strike off is a pretty strong demonstration that we're capable of an over-the-horizon strike. Um, do we have perfect intelligence on everyone? No. It took us a while to find this guy. Um, but I think it's an important deterrent to go after these senior leaders, leaders to make sure that they know it may take years, but we are coming for you and you're not going to be safe if you attack us. So, uh, you're, you know, look, nothing's perfect. I would prefer to have an embassy, a traditional intelligence presence, but we clearly have something there, right? We clearly have the ability to pull off that kind of high impact strike. Um, and that's not because we're doing everything remote. It's because we have eyes on the ground, confirmation, redundant sources and methods. Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan, which is having primaries today, Alyssa Slotkin, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Now it seems the text messages of several top Pentagon officials around January 6th are also missing. Wow. Real erasure problems during those last few days of the Trump uh, years. And our politics lead CNN has learned that the cell phones of several key Pentagon and military officials were wiped when those officials left their posts at the end of the Trump administration. So they deleted any text messages that might have been sent or received on or around January 6th. This according to government court filings from the Department of Justice. CNN's Kara Scannell is following this. Kara, tell us more. Well, Jake, we're learning about these deleted text messages from a lawsuit filed by the government watchdog group American Oversight. They sued the um, Department of Defense and the Army uh, after they had filed multiple Freedom of Information Act requests and didn't receive the documents and the messages that they were looking for. Uh, So what they asked for were any text messages sent from Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, or anyone acting on their behalf with seven top Defense Department officials. Those officials include the Department of Defense Secretary Chris Miller, his chief of staff, Cash Patel, General Counsel Paul Nye. They also were looking for any text messages with members of the Army, the Secretary Ryan McCarthy, General Counsel James McPherson, and two current active members, the Chief of Staff James McConville and the Director of Army Staff Lieutenant General Walter Now, the position of the Department of Defense was laid out in a joint status report that was filed in this case, in this litigation. And in that, the Department of Defense says that the DOD and Army conveyed to plaintiff, that's American oversight, that when an employee separates from DOD or Army, he or she turns in the government issue phone and the phone is wiped. For those custodians no longer with the agency, the text messages were not preserved and therefore could not be searched. Now, they said that they will search for those uh, records of the two members that are still there. And they say it's possible that some text messages may have been memorialized in emails or, or other matters. But there still is a big question here about what this full policy is and why the Department of Defense and other government agencies are not retaining these text messages. Uh, you know, none of the individuals, there's no suspicion here or suggestion that they were involved in the deletion. This seems to have occurred after they left the government and retired their phones. Uh, we reached out to all of them. We either cannot reach them. And one, um, Secretary Miller declined to comment, Jake. Yeah, this comes, of course, with DHS and Secret Service uh, text messages similarly wiped. Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Donald Trump throwing a wrench into the Missouri Republican Senate primary, endorsing Eric. There is a problem, of course. Three men named Eric are running in that primary. What else do you need to know about today's key primary races? Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, fewer than 100 days remain until the midterm elections, and that means the final rounds of primary contests will hit in quick succession over the next six weeks. It starts tonight. 
with key races in Missouri, Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, and Washington State. We're watching, among other things, how former President Trump's influence will affect Republican voters and how many candidates who don't believe in democracy are going to make it through Republican primaries. CNN is live on the ground closely following these primary fights. Let's go first to CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny. He's live in St. Louis, Missouri. And Jeff, Trump dropped a last-minute endorsement of sorts in the Republican Senate primary there, um, but it was bizarre and, uh, you know, just objectively a weird endorsement. Explain it for us. Well, Jake, the former president said the good people of Missouri will have to make up their own minds in the Senate race, and that is exactly what they've been doing. He went on to endorse a candidate named Eric. There are three Eric's Uh, who were on the ballot of some 21 Republicans who are running for the U.S. Senate seat here. Of course, he was talking about one of the two Eric's, former uh, Missouri Governor Eric Greitens or Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. The former president simply could not decide, did not want to decide between those two candidates who are believed to be locked in a close race with Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. Sort of going into the the final hours of the the voting here, there's about uh, uh, two and a half hours or so left to go. Those three Republicans are thought to be leading the way, but we will see. We will see what voters decide. Jake, the reason this race is important, it's to fill the seat of retiring Republican Senator Roy Blunt. And Democrats believe that that they could have a shot to win this race if Greitens wins. Of course, he's the disgraced former governor who's uh, accused of abuse allegations, but he is also still, of course, running strong here in Missouri, Jake. Weird race. To Arizona's gubernatorial race now, CNN senior national correspondent Kyung Law is live for us in the Phoenix suburb of Scottsdale. And Kyung, this Republican primary race uh, in the in the governor's part of it really doubles as a proxy war uh, between Trump and his former vice president, Mike Pence, who have endorsed different candidates. Yes. And not just is it a proxy war, it's also a test of Trump's influence on his party here in Arizona. But to that proxy war, who are these foot soldiers in that war? What you have is the Trump-backed 2020 election lie embracing Carrie Lake. She is running against who former Vice President Mike Pence is backing, Karen Taylor Robeson. There's actually very little policy sunlight between these two candidates. The big difference is how much they believe in the 2020 election lie. Lake has fully endorsed it and made it a part, a centerpiece of her campaign. But there are candidates who have been backed by Trump up and down this ballot, from governor to attorney general to U.S. Senate to the secretary of state. That being critical, Jake, because the secretary of state will actually administer the elections in this state Uh, And all of those candidates that Trump has endorsed, they believe in his lie. Jake. All right, Kyung. And CNN's Nick Valencia joins us now live from Topeka, Kansas. Kansas is where uh, abortion rights are on the ballot. And, And Nick, the ballot language is a little bit confusing in Kansas. A no vote supports the right to an abortion and a yes vote uh, opens the door to more abortion restrictions or an abortion ban. Did I have, do I have that right? 
That's right, Jake, and it's a big reason why abortion rights advocates have spent a lot of time going door to door to not only educate voters on this amendment language, but also encourage them to get out to vote. This critical issue has been put on the primary ballot where traditionally more Republicans vote, and historically there is lower voter turnout. Abortion rights groups believe that that was an intentional move by Kansas Republicans to skew things in their favor. And look, while this is not a vote for an outright abortion ban, it is a big step in that direction. What this amendment would do is if passed, it would give the power to the supermajority Republican legislature, which has already indicated that they would move swiftly to draft legislation banning abortion outright in the state. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, Kyung Lan, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Leon Caldwell, let me start with you. So Kansas is a reliably conservative state. Mm-hmm. It does have a Democratic governor um, because their, uh, rep- the Republican nominee last time was so out there. Um, is, uh, is there any indication of what's going to happen with this abortion rights measure this to change the constitution well we're gonna have to wait to see as a reporter just said that both sides are extremely animated on this issue for weeks they have been trying to educate voters on both sides of the aisle but you're right it does have a democratic governor and i asked chuck schumer about this today what is this going to mean for the rest of the country on the issue of abortion he tried to say that well it's a conservative state he really downplayed what the results might be so maybe that's an indication of how this is going to turn out but everyone across the country is absolutely watching this to see what this means for conservative or swing states Cross country. And just to remind people, if you support abortion rights, it's a no. If you're against abortion rights, if you want abortion restrictions, it's a yes. Just to anyone watching out there who's confused. To make because, it really easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made it tough. And in fact, some, mm-hmm. some people are, are playing up that, 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 that confusion and trying to trick people. Yeah, Maria, um, so big le- night last night for anyone in Missouri named Eric. Um, <laughs> Do- Donald Trump right. writes, quote, I am therefore proud to announce that Eric has my complete and total endorsement, both Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt were quick to claim they were the intended recipient of that endorsement, which is just bizarre. I've never seen anything like this. It's a little crazy, Jake. <laughs> I think this goes to show you just, you know, what what a snowball of idiocy. I think not just that election, but this whole midterm election season has become. And frankly, Donald Trump at the front end of any kind of Republican Um, candidates or Republican primaries is a good thing for Democrats because, you know, he clearly did this because, you know, Eric, he he can't go wrong. Somebody named Eric is going to win. But either Eric is either a criminal or an election denier or both. And the more that Trump is front and center with these incredibly flawed candidates, the better it is for Democrats as a whole because we can continue to make this election as a huge contrast between candidates who are criminals, who are flawed, who are election deniers, who are truth deniers, right. and candidates who will actually support democracy, support the truth. Yeah, except it's a it's probably going to be a red wave year of sorts. It usually is historically. It, it is, might not though. It well, might not though, Jake, because I think we have a we have a spectacular wish- chance to defy conventional wisdom and history. Because of that and because of other factors. I I don't want to discount, though, the significance of all these people who, whether they believe it Mm -hmm. or just pretend they believe it in these lies. I mean, I think the secretary of state nominee that Trump has endorsed in Arizona has already said he's not going to he's he's not going to support the the results of the election. He's hedging sort of like endorsing two Eric's. You say it was rigged if you lose and it was, you know, a 
legit election if you win. Um, but Missouri is interesting because it also, as we're going to see in Arizona, pits different potential 2024 endorsements against each other. So Josh Hawley's uh, backing Vicki Hartzler, who to any traditional Republican conservative, she would be the obvious successor to a Roy Blunt. Um, but obviously the former president is with the, the two Eric's, um, one credibly accused of sexual assault, of violence toward women. Um, I By both think, his girlfriend and, and his, his wife. wife. Yeah. Yes. And then obviously in Arizona, the Mike Pence endorsement, the you know former governor, Doug Ducey, endorsed uh, Robeson, whereas the um, former president is obviously with election denier, Carrie Lake. Speaking of Carrie Lake, Francesca, take a look at this. Here, you can't even make this stuff up. Here is Carrie Lake, who, by the way, used to be a, uh, a never-Trumper, who used to be a TV journalist, used to, uh, by all accounts, be a rational human being. Here she is last night. So just to just to bring out the, the part that she said, we're going to win. And if we don't win, there's some cheating going on. That's what she said. And well, you had brought up uh, Mike Pence, the former vice president, and you heard him say recently that these are things that they that he feels like you need to move on from these sorts of things and think about the future. And that's what I'm hearing from a lot of Republicans behind the scenes, Jake. They are concerned about some of these Republicans who could be the nominees, that it will give Democrats an mm-hmm. upper hand in these elections, whether it's uh, at the gubernatorial level or it's at the Senate race level. You talked about Missouri. That's exactly the concern that I'm hearing from Republicans when it comes to Eric Greitens in that race, that you could be handing Democrats a victory in that race just by by nominating him. That's where uh, Claire McCaskill was able in Missouri mm-hmm. to, to win her mm-hmm. second race, I think, by uh, she helped uh, in the medal in the Republican primary, Todd Akin, who had some crazy comments about rape, became her opponent, and she was able to get reelected. Speaking uh, of meddling, uh, tonight's going to be uh, a scorecard for three members of the impeachment, 10, the 10 Republicans who voted in the House for uh, Trump's second impeachment. Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan, whose opponent is being boosted by the DCCC, yeah. which is gross. Congresswoman uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler and Congressman Dan Newhouse of Washington Uh, And really, anything could happen. Yeah, that's right. And so far, out of the 10 Republicans, of course, there's a couple primaries later on with Liz Cheney. But but only one has survived, either not retired or survived their election so far. And that is uh, in California. He's very close with Kevin McCarthy. But tonight is very clear. Trump has endorsed in 25 races, maybe 26 or 27 if you count all the Eric's. Um, <laughs> but he's also endorsed in down-ballot races, especially in Michigan as well. And after tonight, we're, and all of these people have one thing in common. They are all election deniers. Mm-hmm. And it will be clear tonight on if that is a prevailing thought among the Republican base from East Coast down to the Midwest. And, and, and Maria, I have to say, I, I, I disagree with you that... Uh, you know, all the contrast is going to necessarily help Democrats. I think there are a lot of people who think it's gross that the, I just said it was gross, so I'm obviously one of them, mm-hmm. that it's gross that the Democrats, that DCCC are getting involved in races to defeat people like uh, Congressman Peter Meyer to boost election deniers. And, and when I asked Congressman Kinzinger about this, who's one of the impeachment 10, mm-hmm. he said not only is it a risk, he predicts mm-hmm. that the red wave is going to sweep some of these wackadoodles mm-hmm. into office. Sure. And, and clearly th- that is a huge danger. And I actually don't think they necessarily have to boost them because in most of the races, they are already ahead. And that's what the DCCC will tell you. 
But I think it, it comes down to all of these wacky things that we're talking about are not things that happened when the historically red waves or blue waves, depending on the party that was in power or out of power, happened in the midterm election right after a president won. I think we can, not necessarily we will, but we have a huge opportunity to defy that history. I think we're going to keep but- the Senate... For example, the problem is, though, that the big lie is so is resonating so strongly within the base of the Republican Party. As many as 60 percent of Republicans believe it because national figures aren't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. So that continues to be a very animating factor. And unfortunately, I mean, the state of the economy right now is going to be 9.1 percent. But I think that hurts Republicans. That big lie percent inflation. Anyway, thanks so much for being here, everybody. (laughs) Rescue crews in Kentucky are still struggling to get a grasp on how many. Kentuckians are missing after the hideous, horrific, disastrous flooding. And now another dangerous weather threat is actually expected there. That's next. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, the McKinney Fire in Northern California is still burning out of control despite help from cooler weather. The fire, which broke out near the California-Oregon border last Friday, has burned more than 56,000 acres. Four people have been killed. And officials fear today's severe thunderstorms could fan the flames and spread the fire further. Meanwhile, in eastern Kentucky, the death toll from last week's devastating flooding now stands at 37. And Kentucky's governor says it will take weeks to know the exact number of those still missing. Rescue crews are scrambling to get to people trapped in areas where roads and bridges have been washed away. And while the region avoided any new overnight flooding, stifling heat is now expected tomorrow. CNN's Evan McMorris-Santoro's in Hazard, Kentucky. And Evan, there are reports of people stranded in need of resources such as food, water, insulin, are rescue crews able to get to them? They, they are in some cases, but it's very, very difficult. I want to show you some video that our photojournalist Mark Biello shot today that kind of explains this. This is video shot in the Lower River Caney and Upper River Caney here in Perry County. Those are two of those hollows that we talk about. Places that like are only accessible by one road, in or out, collection of houses back there. There, We went out there with a group of doctors and medical uh, workers who are going out there to try to see people who are trapped and ask them what they need and help them out. And what we've learned today is that the, the number one thing they're asking for is tetanus shots because there's so much debris everywhere. People are trying to clean up and they're stepping on it and they're getting cut by it and they want to get protected from it. But that's the, that's the level of things that we're dealing with out here. People are trapped in their houses because they're the only accessible world to the outside world and washed away. And they need a tetanus shot because they're getting cut on the debris that swept into their yard from a historic flood. It's an unbelievable situation, Jake, and it just is a really, really harrowing thing these people are dealing with. All right, Evan McMorris-Santoro, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Claims of player tampering and even game fixing in the NFL. The league today releasing its findings and punishing one team owner, if you call that a punishment. That story next. In our sports lead, the NFL has suspended Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross through mid-October and fined him $1.5 million for violating the league's policies relating to the integrity of the game. A six-month investigation found that Ross violated a policy against tampering with other teams' players on three separate occasions. On two of those occasions, communicating with quarterback Tom Brady. But the investigation did not find that Ross offered then-head coach Brian Flores financial incentives to intentionally lose games to improve the team's draft position. The investigation found that he talked about tanking for a better draft position, but 
they found he was not really serious about it. Flores issued a statement saying, quote, I am thankful that the NFL's investigator found my factual allegations against Stephen Ross are true. At the same time, I'm disappointed to learn that the investigator minimized Mr. Ross's offers and pressure to tank games, especially when I wrote and submitted a letter at the time to Dolphins executives documenting my serious concerns regarding this subject at the time, which the investigator has in her possession, unquote. This NFL slap on the wrist comes after the Cleveland Browns' Deshaun Watson, who's been accused of sexual misconduct by two dozen women, was suspended for only six games. I guess guess it's a good thing neither of them was caught doing something really bad, like smoking a joint. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with the great Pamela Brown in for Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 